0: We're all meat. Cheerio. Yeah. Anyway, um, I, I do think um, it was a favourite toast, but at the same time, um, it's literally true, of course, and Francis is a realist. He was at great pains to keep telling everybody he was a realist, and I'll come back to that um, as we go through. Um, if my slides occasionally seem a bit text-heavy, don't worry, you don't have to read it. Um, I put it there so in, in case I forget what I was going to say. Um... But um, I'll, so I'll, I'll just talk us through it. So so don't bother to read it. Um, what I wanted to do was to look, first of all at the extraordinary making. and I think you know Andrew will have a different take, a conservation point of view, but I, uh, there were so many things I discovered after I'd written the catalog. Always the case, isn't it? You know you get the works out of the box, put them on the wall, and think, "Oh God, that's what was going on anyway. So I'll, I'll do some of that, because I think um, the making is quite extraordinary, and it's very material process-oriented. It's not picture-making as such, in a simple way, at least. Um, and so um, what I tried to do in the catalogue, um, and we will reiterate a bit here in the middle, um, is the way in which that realism um, can be described in terms of the way he uses materials, the way in which he uses that pictorial resource which we've got in that line of display cases in the 50s room. Um, And I had quite a long conversation with Dawn Ades, who was originally going to write an essay to back me up. But actually, she didn't get there in time. So she said, Tony, you do it. I thought, well, OK. So I've tried to get it all into that essay. And we'll, we'll run over that a little bit today. It's all the things he picks up and inserts in some way into the work in a very sort of material way. Not, as I say, draftsmanship or anything like that. He doesn't do that. Um, and then finally, um, I'll come to um, a, a little preview of what Makushta is going to deal with, which is the strange morphing um, that seems to go on. Um, the impossible space frames, because you know all these figures are sort of staged in a box or frame or whatever, um, like on a piece of furniture that he might have designed in 1929-30. But those those frames become more and more improbable they 're both behind and before the figure they sort of weave through the figure and lock it into the pictorial plane in a very peculiar way deliberately or by chance I don 't think there's as much chance in Francis as he likes to say there is, but still so that's um, that's the route I want to go down and I had to start off with this one because I've always been fascinated with this little image, which is in Belfast. Um, and just as an image, but also because, you know, it's the one painting that Francis spent over four months working on. He always said, if you don't get it straight away, you know, throw it away because it's going to get clogged. And, and there are some... I mean, actually, Gagossian did an exhibition a few years ago where they dredged up a couple of supposedly destroyed early canvases from the late 40s Uh, which clearly had got clogged, and he kept working on them, and they got worse and worse, and he thought he'd destroyed them, but Larry's team managed to find them and put them on display. Um, And it was actually, for a curator, actually fascinating to actually see those failed works, because, you know, if you take chances, and Francis is, um, apart from playing roulette, the only gambling he liked really was roulette because it was a one-throw-of-the-dice kind of thing, Um, his painting is exactly like that. And just like Anselm Kiefer, if you take ridiculous risks and demand that you need to know nothing about painting at all, then um, you're going to have to destroy most of the works, as Anselm very sensibly used to um, and Francis did throughout his life. So um, this one fascinated me because um, that kind of the vertical strokes that, ma- that create the sense of a kind of somewhat translucent veil-like curtain, like it's lycra or something, um, b- bouncing across a really crusty underpainting. There's an incredible texture there of um, what what seems to be this kind of horizontal, almost like a washboard or corrugated cardboard or something. Um, how on earth did he actually arrive at that kind of underpainting? Um, and it, was, it baffled me. I went straight from um, Belfast to Paris, in fact, to look at Monet's late water lilies uh, in the Orangerie, because there you know, he's built up this incredibly craggy, dry, crusty surface and then comes back with a slightly liquid green or blue and it becomes light and air and transparent as the brush... I mean, Elkins describes the way the brush bounces across the surface, leaving a sort of transparency and colour showing through and so on. And in a sense, although this is very leaden uh, as as a sort of monochromatic work, it has that kind of translucency. But how on earth did that come about? Just to get a close-up of it, he's also built up things like the teeth and the arrow which stands up a millimetre or so above the surface of the paint. Um, But you can see, perhaps there, very particularly, you know, this kind of strange corrugation and the way the paint the vertical brush box, uh, bounce across it. I just put in this little bit of uh, tomb, tombame, um with the safety pin because, of course, you know, it's often referred to the, the, the safety pin that appears in Bacon's paintings actually possibly being influenced by Duchamp. And because I'm going to come back to Duchamp in a big way, um, I thought I'd just bounce that in as well. But what was extraordinary was when we unpacked Melbourne's painting Beautiful sensual painting, Um, and I was looking at it and and looking at the the way uh, the the canvas shows through. It's one of the colours he uses quite a lot. Is actually raw linen canvas. And it just happened that uh, at the end of the forties, Andrew will know, but I think it probably was in fact forty nine. He started to paint on the back of the canvas. He'd buy. Uh, commercially-primed Belgian linen canvas, turn it over and paint on the rough side. Um, Francis said, you know, that the great thing about that is you put a mark on that and you're stuck with it. It either works or it doesn't. If you do it on the primed side, you get some turps out and wipe it off. Uh, so it was, again, this one throw of the dice thing. Um, but there's a lot more to it than that, clearly. Uh, there's a lot of exposed canvas, which I say often operates as a colour, but something else very odd, which I suddenly noticed. As the vertical brush goes down that linen canvas, it picks up the horizontal weft of the canvas, and it just, I think you can probably see it beginning to happen there in that almost raw part of the canvas. Um, And it skips over and and leaves a little trace of of dry paint on each of the horizontal threads. And as he moves across in, in this particular painting from Melbourne, As it gets to the middle you can see it's building up and it's beginning to be the structure that appears in that belfast work well i know that's a very nerdy sort of thing to think about but i actually was thrilled to discover it because it was um i'd been worrying about that underpainting for a long time it's not an underpainting it's a result of an interaction between a fairly dry loaded brush and a horizontal weft in the canvas Um, this one um, is from the met and it's painted on board it's painted earlier than the Belfast one, and it's um, being on board. Of course, it doesn't have that underpainting texture, that kind of quality. Nonetheless, he has built it up. He's built up the ear, uh, he's built up the teeth, and so on. Um, but but it, the the field is relatively flat. So I've opened the show with a painting that Francis never allowed to be in retrospectives. Um, I think he wanted to kick off his career in 1943, not 1933. Um, But I think it's kind of interesting because, uh, first of all, of course, it's the first time he's published in Herbert Reed's famous uh, Now book. The fact that Herbert Reed decided to put it on a double-page spread with um, Picasso Bather from the late 20s, um, which, of course, Francis says he saw in Paris... There's a slight dispute about which show he actually saw, whether it was in 1928 or what, but around that point. Um, And it's usually talked about as a demonstration of how influential Picasso was on Bacon's painting. I actually see completely the reverse of that. Uh, When you look at those two things side by side, you can see Picasso is very good at drawing. He draws a very concrete form and then fills it in Francis doesn't draw. He summons a kind of ethereal, luminous veil of paint out of the air and sets it against a Rembrandtesque atmospheric background. None of that is anything that Picasso would contemplate for a minute. So, to me, it's like a demonstration of as far away from Picasso as you can possibly get, even though the subject matter can be seen as being related. I think the point, really, for Bacon was that you can distort a figure a hell of a long way and it still has the the presence of a a human form. Um, And then in the 40s, he does somewhat more Picasso-like paintings. But this kind of quality comes back with a vengeance in the 50s, so I'll come to that. Um, This one from Detroit, Um, I'd always realized that um, just even looking at the, the photographs of the work, which doesn't usually tell you very much, to be honest, Um, that the shadow was a very substantial object in the painting. Um, When you see it on the wall, you suddenly realise, not only is it more substantial than the figure itself, um, it makes no sense, really. It's it's, um, not a shadow, what's it falling on, you know? Um, It's one of the first shadows that, that begin a sort of process of the detachment of the shadow, which he sometimes said was like the ghost of the body. Not that he believed in ghosts, of course. He was quick to point out. Um, but they become like almost like ectoplasm, or, or some sort of... People talk about fluids seeping from the body in the case of the George Dyer triptych from the Tate, and so on. Um, but anyway, when you get a close look at this, um, you see... I don't know. Andrew probably again will, will be able to confirm or deny. But to me, it almost looks like he's used stand oil in the paint uh, and mixed in silver sand, which he always had a bowl of sitting around in the studio uh, to make it really almost like a sculpture of a shadow, not like a, you know, what? Not like an absence of light at all. It's a thing. Um, and then um, go back. Uh, I was also very conscious of the fact that with this painting. It's one of the ones in which the body is barely drawn at all. Um, it's, it's not really described or, or modelled or whatever. It's hinted at by various brush strokes, which I took, actually, from reproduction um, to be um, sort of quite spontaneous, um, quick marks of the brush. But when you get up close, which, of course, you can thanks to Francis putting glass over everything. You have to get up close to see it. Um, but when you do get up close, you realise that those spontaneous brush marks are far from spontaneous. He's actually mixed sand into fairly dry paint, and he's painting on that raw canvas, a very rough, dry surface. Can you imagine that sandy paint dragging that across the surface? You know, It like, gets your teeth on it just thinking about it. Now what's that about, you know? I really actually don't know. Do you know, Andrew, or maybe you... Anyway, but it's a very weird thing indeed, I think. So it's far from quick, spontaneous, and fresh. It's as difficult as he could possibly make it for himself. Of course, you probably noticed a few times um, arrows appearing. Uh, Francis would say, I just thought I needed something there. Um, There's All sorts of ideas came to my mind about that, actually. Because people do ask you, what's that for? Or what's that circle in the middle of the, the, the canvas? Uh, sometimes I think it's a paint lid. But anyway, you know, I, I, I was tr- tending to describe it, particularly in terms of our own self-portrait from 76, as a kind of geometric counterpoint to the, the gesture of the painting of the body. And actually, it was one of our guides who said, ah, a still point in a turning world. Thought, of course, you know, because Bacon's besotted with Eliot. And in the four quartets as that, that comes up, I think it's in Burnt Norton, might not be. Anyway, um, and I thought, well, maybe the arrows are also, you know, like this turning world. Anyway, I don't know. And on that wall in the 50s, incidentally, I, I, I really wish I'd known that when I got them out, they were going to make a wall, as it were. Uh, there's a cluster of five in the middle. Um, and that one we we're just looking at from Detroit is the sort of one of three large ones on the left, and this one's one of the three in the middle of, um, on the right. And um, they just became a cluster in my mind immediately, I saw them. Um, and I think... I, I was doubtful about whether... I, I, had, I thought, maybe I've got too much of the 50s, maybe I got too many after my bridge-crouching figures or figures in cages or whatever. Um, but I'm so pleased that we did have them because it turned out for me to be one of the great surprises of the show, seeing them together. And this one, which from a distance, um, inside the cage, the frame, there's this kind of crackling luminosity or it's as if, you know, um, the Star Trek moment where Scott is beaming him up um, and, and the figure's sort of crackling into, into a presence People tend to talk about these things as disintegrating. Um, I'm more thinking of them in terms of Bacon summoning the presence out of the ether um, in that way. And what's really fascinating, um, getting a bit closer, that although the figure clearly isn't drawn or painted in in any way, where the vertical strokes of the curtain passes through where the figure's about to be, um, he just thickens up that paint a bit. And 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 our eye, our brain, patches that together to create the sort of imminence of a figure about to be. But oddly, getting closer still, you discover, to the right of the arrow there, turning, um, this strange putty-like thing. I don't know what it's made. It's almost like it's made with plaster or something. Again, Andrew will probably tell you. But but it's, it's this kind of really clunky, awkward modelling of a, a head. You see quite a strongly defined ear there, um, eye sockets. It, it, it's, it remains relatively unformed, though, so um, people from a distance, some people look at it and think, "Ah, oh, it's a skull. Other people um, see a gorilla um, sitting there. Um, I just think it's a man in a suit. I mean, you can see the lapel. Um, but, but what is that modelling up of the head? doing um, where the rest of the figure is so um, unformed, and having modeled it up, how come it's still so unformed? you know What's that about? Anyway, I, and I really can't speculate why, um, except that he's somebody who really knows when he's got something working, um, even though he doesn't know what he's doing, I think anyway. And probably the most successful of all those hardly painted at all bodies uh, is this extraordinary evocation of a barking baboon. Hardly any paint on the body of the baboon, and yet that presence of that primate in that painting is incredibly powerful. Probably my actual favourite painting as such. Not as curious as the, um, that body disintegrating or coming into being from the estate, but, um, a beautiful thing. Curiously enough, it's the one painting in the whole show you might notice that doesn't have a Francis Bacon frame on it. I think probably Mama thought it wasn't modern enough. Um, I did ask the conservatory, and they had no idea why they'd taken the Francis Bacon frame off and put that on. Anyway, um, that's an aside, because, I mean, people do ask, and Francis was very keen that his paintings would be grand. I mean, if in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, Grandeur was not something artists aspired to. People were rather sort, of, you know, trying to be a little bit sort of direct, um, not not being grand. Putting it in a gold frame, under glass, like an old master. Um, and Bacon wanted to be in there with the grand old masters. And in fact, um, he did. In fact, have a show with Caravaggio uh, a couple of years ago in Rome. So, the the material, the um, Indexical realist kind of angle that I was um, trying to get together. Francis constantly talked about Marcel Duchamp. Not really about Picasso, but about Duchamp. And it was never clear. He never said why, actually. Uh, David Sylvester tried to get him to talk about the large glass. Um, yes, Francis, you know, you must be thinking about Duchamp's large glass because you know, he wanted the reflections in the glass and the transparency. And Francis said, no, I just wanted to protect the paintings. I can't varnish them, which, of course, is true. He couldn't varnish them because you see so many different textures, from matte to gloss to sandy. Um, If you varnished it, you'd kind of kill that. Um, So it had to go under glass. And uh, but that's the artist, you know, being evasive, because he's really evasive in his conversations. And David never got to push that question hard enough. Um, Anyway. one hint came from the fact that he talked about using dust to create Eric Hall's coat in this painting in the first room. And I thought, that's that's definitely a clue. And I did talk to Dawn Ades about that. And I pointed out that, you know, he wanted to get the furry texture of the coat, so he picked dust off, off the floor and put it in the painting. It's almost impossible to detect with the naked eye. Um, we managed to do it with conservation, could actually pick up the dust... Uh, fluorescing, but actually it's not very easy to see. However, painting with dust of course takes you to Marcel Duchamp when Marcel Duchamp wanted to make the image of the sieves in in the bachelor's domain at the bottom of the large glass. Those uh, cones, he actually collected dust and had it fixed in the shape of the sieves. What does a sieve do? It it extracts particles from a matrix, air or liquid, um, and that's Duchamp did to make the sieves. So it's a kind of uh, making in which you're not making a picture of something exactly. you might be making a picture of something, but at the same time, you're making a material statement which has an equivalency with the thing that you're trying to describe. And I think that's a very compelling lead towards what the Duchamp thing was about. Duchamp wasn't the first person to want to use material um, to give a sensation of the thing itself. Um, and in Vermeer, you see the view of Delft on the left in the far left-hand corner of the view of Delft. The um, image on the right um, is a close-up of that bu- building right on the left of the painting. And the inset is that window just to the right of the dormer thing. And you can see he's, he's mixed in uh, sand and, and really rough pigment to create a kind of bricky sensation in the paint. It's a realist strategy to to have an equivalency of material and um, the thing itself, not just a picture of or an illusion of. The other thing that's very material is, of course, uh, all those photographs you see in those cases. The fact that they've been bent, pinned, clipped, glued down, spattered in paint, obviously used in the paintings, um, it is a kind of material trace, which I think finds its way into the work. I wasn't going there. It was actually Dawn 80s who said, Tony, just call it indexical realism and get on with it. You know, She was quite right. That's what it is. But also, in amongst it, uh, on the floor of the studio, uh, there were several photographs um, of the um, folded in different ways of the famous door at 11 Rue Laue, uh, where Duchamp built a door into a corner two Always one door, and the French always say a door is either open or closed, but not for Marcel. If it was open, it was also definitely closed, and vice versa. That's, I think, really pertinent when you get on to looking at some of the ambiguities and strange voids that open up in the back of Bacon's paintings later on. Um, but it's another Duchamp reference. And down below that, there's um, that extraordinary, my favourite of all Picassos, because it's so strange, and he only did it once, I think, really. A still life with chair caning, I'm sure you all know it well enough. But the fact of using oilcloth imprinted with um, the pattern of chair caning um, and collage that onto an oval canvas um, to make... Um, it still stands for the chair, but it also now becomes the oilcloth that goes over a table in Paris uh, street cafes in the uh, early 20th century. Um, and of course, the tablecloth would be held on by a piece of rope, uh, which later becomes a motif in carving tables. Um, so there's all kinds of, it, it, you know, and that rope is also, you know, like an endless loop, an Ouroboros. And I think, you know, that kind of chasing of signifier and referent is sort of a bit ouroboros anyway. Um, But I think that that kind of idea of actually turning um, the oval becomes also a perspectival tabletop, all these things going on. And it it takes you to Rauschenberg, which is a more obvious connection to to Bacon being of that generation. Um, And again, the bed is tilted from the horizontal to the vertical, making it useless as a bed, not to mention all the scribbling and paint dribbling all over it. But he's, you know, by flipping it through 90 degrees, he makes the bed a representation of itself. So I'm just underscoring this because some people, I I find, don't quite get what I'm talking about when I'm talking about this kind of um, the way in which, you know, the referent can become the signifier of itself. um, Or, you know, even just a trace of something can be. Um, Anyway. So, and the next step for me. In, in the studio there's this image um, of Boyce about to disappear through a door at the back um, of a corridor very velasquez and um, and a couple of images of the studio and For me, I was actually interested in the fact that Russell talks about a dinner party that uh, Richard Hamilton uh, organized between Francis and joseph Boyce and unfortunately, um, I never got to ask Richard because he was pretty Straightforward about answering emails, that he died before I got to ask him. But I am fairly sure that his intuition, similar to mine, that there is this kind of relationship um, between the chaos that breeds images and the cultural battery or fond of the assemblages of the late 50s and early 60s by Joseph Boyce. The bundles of newspapers in Boyce, he says, are a history of our time. Francis talked about the images on the floor of the studio being possible to put together as a book, which would be the history of our time. I think there was a resonance there, which is quite strong and uh, purely speculation. Um, but I suspect that Richard had the same idea. Unfortunately, it didn't really work. It was fine, apparently, for the evening. And Boyce was quite keen to continue it. But Francis just wanted a crit in painting. And that wasn't, that wasn't going to be Joseph. This was my lucky find. Um, Eddie Batash, who lives part of the year in Sydney, um, was once asked by Francis, they saw a lot of Francis in Paris in the 70s, asked by Francis to translate a letter that Francis wanted to write to Michel Leiris um, to describe to Michel Leris what he meant by realism. And um, Michel was going to actually translate the Sylvester interviews, and, and Francis wanted to be quite sure that he got the message. So he's describing realism in his terms. And he comes to this part on this wonderful page, where he says, sometimes you see the grass, I'd like to pull it out with the earth and put it in the frame. But of course, it wouldn't work. You have to find some other method to, to make it work. On the other hand, uh, Boyce's mentee, um, Anson Kiefer, wouldn't hesitate to put up the grass on the earth and stick it in the frame. Just Francis wasn't going there. Um, but, 61, he moves into the new studio, he gets a settled life, he's, got, he's surrounded by his friends. After the 50s, which is really scattered, he's all over the place, he's travelling all the time, he's sleeping on friends' couches, he doesn't have a proper studio most of that time. But 61 onwards, he's got a very relatively settled life, shall we say, and he, he settles down to painting these friends and so on. But I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that in this painting of George Dyer, the, the kind of usual mugshot thing, like a police mugshot. Center, left, right. Um, he's reached not just for photographs, but he's reached for the lid of a paint tube. Boom, 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 boom. See those circles? I'm pretty certain that's where that comes from. And in the um, Henrietta Mores next to it, um, apart from the wonderful um, image of Emmanuel Riva, um, folded and creased and pinned and stuck down, so you get this kind of distortion, this crease through the middle of the face, which becomes that image in uh, More's and in a lot of the other portraits subsequently. Um, You see this, um, the white slash of paint, let's get a bit of a detail, um, which carves into the feature, almost doing a kind of cubist deconstruction of the face. And then he comes back with a piece of old cardigan or something off the floor of the studio with red paint, and he's kind of dabs it. And I, I kind of think of it as like he's, he's doing this violence to the face, and then he comes back and he's patting it quite gently. There's a tenderness about Bacon, which I'd never expected to find. It was actually somebody on the radio from Brisbane said, what's the difference between Francis Bacon and Lucian Freud? And unfortunately, this was live, so I couldn't think about it much. Um, so I had to spontaneously come up with something, and I thought just popped into my head, thinking about the images. I said, you know, I don't think Lucien Freud ever painted a tender anything. Um, and actually, there are lots of tender moments in Francis's paintings. And I think I'm right about that. Anyway. And particularly when you look at lyris, Again, this sort of arc down the face from that Emmanuel Riva distortion. Um, and then this very gentle pat, 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 patting with, with some kind of fabric. Uh, sometimes it um, looks to me like a cardigan. Sometimes it's corduroy. Sometimes it's maybe sacking or something. And just coming... How am I going? Am I... Five. Five. Okay, good. So I'll, I'll rush through this, but because I know Macushter is going to cover it um, somewhat. Sorry? 10 hmm? I've got ten. Oh, good. Okay. Right, so I threw these in. Um, Obviously, Velasquez was somebody uh, that Bacon was very interested in. I mean, not only the Pope um, that he painted again and again, although he regretted it later, like that awful painting after Van Gogh in the exhibition. (laughs) It's good to have an awful painting. Anyway, um, he just couldn't do that, you know, that drawing with paint. It's not his thing. But Velasquez um, is very interesting because, of course, with Las Meninas, he's playing all kinds of silly games with us. Um, You know, I had lengthy conversations uh, with Donald Brook, who said that Foucault had it completely wrong. Um, The King and Queen could not have been standing where we're standing now, looking at the painting, with Velasquez painting them as us, or us as them. Um, Indeed, the image of the King and Queen reflected in the mirror at the back of the thing is actually a reflection of the painting that that, uh, Velasquez is working on, and he worked out all the sight lines to prove it. But, you know, Foucault's analysis, I think, is fascinating nonetheless. And either way, um, I, I'm tempted to think vlasquez is playing with us in this respect. Um, and certainly, he's thinking about your position before the work. You're on a kind of ugmerk, and everything else is revolving around that. Boyce again disappearing through the door at the back, just like the courtier in the back of the Vlasquez, and another version of the image of the door at Rue Larré. So, and I do that because, um, unfortunately, um, I may be wrong, Barbara, but I don't think um, Albers appears anywhere in the studio. Um, but it did occur to me that these kind of space frames are getting more and more improbable. So I just kind of put in the Albers as a kind of point of reference. Um, but you see, you know, the, um, this frame which encloses the figure sometimes passes through it, sometimes passes behind it. Part of the frame that should be beyond the figure turns out to be in front of the figure. And, um, and this becomes something you find in a lot of the paintings. Uh, it's really not making any sense at all. Um, you've got this very, I, th- I think again, quite a tender domestic scene of George shaving. And then in the middle, there's almost a kind of Yves Klein void instead of a mirror, uh, curious. In that middle room, um, all the paintings reference Dyer. I mean all of them whether they say they do or not and um, <clears throat> this one from Canberra of course the figure on the right there that very very um, distinctive profile the Mybridge wrestlers copulating couple or whatever they are in the middle um, based on, on, on the hammock, the figure in a hammock female figure in a hammock after MyBridge. Um, but you can see George very clearly there and, of course, the great um, memorial picture. Um, I did try terribly hard to get the one from the private collection in Basel, where, you know, you've got George slumped on the toilet on one side, it slumped over a wash basin on the other side, and the sort of figure in the middle clumped, and this demonic black shadow coming to. She was a lovely lady, and she's got a fabulous collection, she gave me a bottle of champagne, but not the picture. Anyway, I don't know where I would have put it, frankly. I've got no room for it. But the Tate one is pretty interesting. Um, again, I mentioned briefly before that that image of George um, based on a photograph by Deacon that, that, um, that Bacon had commissioned from Deacon. Um, very distinctive profile. The Grappling, copulating figures in the middle. But here, the doorways, windows, voids, whatever they are, And this is going back to Eliot, I I think, you know, um, this is East Coker, I think. Um, Dark, dark, into the night, we all go into the night, the the statesmen, the patrons of arts, whatever. Um, And by, you know, presumably then also Francis and George going into the night, going into into the void. And that void is painted in an incredibly flat, matte way Um, I know he's been using sort of rollers and doing things with um, acrylic paint and so on. Um, But it's not easy, um, as Bob Law will testify, to make that kind of void. And and this is almost as good as Bob Law at creating kind of an infinite depth of space into which the figure might then go. And again, you see um, George upside down in that sort of... um, mirror, disc, magnifying glass, whatever it is, just above the amenities at the bottom there. Um, so this is the dire Room. And this one from private collection in Malibu. I don't think it's been in a retrospective before. Um, I hadn't actually seen it before, and I almost didn't bring it out because I thought, you know, there's too much going on, really. But actually, the painting's much better than it looked in reproduction. Um, I'm really very interested in it, in fact. And again, that very distinctive profile who could actually ever miss George. Um, Now, the interesting thing was that um, before the show opened, Daniel Craig came. And he was um, a Bond person, um, for a Bond meets Bond moment. And um, he played George Dyer in Maybury's Love is the Devil, of course, so he knew all about it. And he was going around picking out all these images, which are full, that middle room is full of. but then it got weirder. You know how um, Francis always said, "You know, why would you paint somebody who's dead? You know, when you've got them, you've got them. When they're dead, they're gone. There's nothing to be done about it. But from the moment that George died in 1971 in that awful way, I guess everybody knows about that. Um, the, the eve of his great show at the Grand Palais, which was going to be the climax of his career, um, and his lovers found dead in the hotel room uh, of a barbiturate overdose. Francis' own barbiturates prescribed to him by his doctor, um, and Francis had been quite irritated. Well, so, anyway, um, so there's this is a terrible moment, but from that moment on, George appears almost everywhere. He, he can't stop painting him, he's painting this dead person, and not necessarily overtly. And I'm not suggesting it's psychological either. He must, I'm sure he knew what he was doing, but this morphing goes on. This is the first very obvious case of morphing in the exhibition, which has nothing to do with George, um, but it's his very early painting of the young Lucian Freud, hardly distorted at all. And here's the source of the pose. I mean, very, very obviously the source of the pose. Um, So he's combining Kafka and Freud, these two Central European intellectuals, into one figure, uh, which I think is fascinating, personally. But anyway, it's the beginning of a morphing process. As we came out of that middle room, Daniel said, wait a minute, that figure on the right has got George's jawline and nose. And I looked at her and thought, well, course it's Henrietta Moray's, of course. But no, it's not. I mean, inside that circle, I presume made by taking a paint lid, Dulux paint can, banging the, the lid on to make a circle. That's what it looks like. Um and then patting back with the cloth, you know. Um, But there indeed is George. And I actually asked Martin Harrison, and he said, yes, no, I'm I'm, I'm sure that's right. And he said, and look at the lying figure, which is so obviously, again, after one of Deacon's photographs of Henrietta More's That's Francis. And that quiff of hair, which is a little bit red. Francis hated having red hair, so he used to sort of boot polish it up, but sometimes it wasn't. And, you know, those gnashing teeth and that here... That's Francis in a paroxysm of something. Um, how Strange that strange, I hadn't noticed it before. It took a bloody actor to point it out. Anyway. And then horror of horrors, moving into the next room. Something else I hadn't noticed. You know, Certainly that figure on the right. Um, it seems to be a kind of a, a morphing of Francis and George into Henrietta. Really, really weird, obsessive stuff going on here. Um, And and, yeah, I'm not going to psychologize it. um, And I'm not even going to speculate whether he knew what he was doing, but I I presume strongly that he did know what he was doing um, at some level. And of course, you know, this um, famous portrait of John Edwards um, in front of a void, no pretense at a window or a door here. It's just a void. but you see that that head is rather clumsily. Obviously, it's very much like John Edwards. I mean, John didn't really get the paintings. I mean, Francis, why do you always paint me looking like a monkey? Well, he's quite a handsome boy, but he does look a bit like a monkey there. But of course, the body is George's, obviously George's body. Pasting your lover, lover's head onto your old lover's, dead lover's body is, is I think, really tragic, but there you go. Then you get this typical, um, well, it's not typical, actually. It's almost trompe l'oeil after Rembrandt uh, painting triptych. Again, the sort of um, mug shots from the police photographs. Um, very much Rembrandtesque. you know, that little blob of white on the end of the nose. Uh, it's very Rembrandt. Uh, and then at the end of the show, a work that um, I, I sort of very much in two minds about, in a way, um, Somebody described it as being Bacon's Impressionist moment, which I think is a pretty funny thing to say. Anyway, um, and I thought, well, it's somewhat sentimental. Um, He's painting it in 1980. He's an old man, uh, contrasting it with the one from 79 from the Met, which is obviously a much uh, more uh, intense and, and stronger painting. But nonetheless, I thought, okay, so he's painting himself as an adolescent, maybe, an old man being nostalgic, Maybe. And then, you know, once I got onto this trip um, of finding George everywhere, I thought, oh, my God, it's France's self-portrait as George. There's the jawline. There's the nose. How weird can you get? I'll leave it there. Thank you.